Hi, I'm Julie Wilkinson and I'm a Chartered Management Accountant and I'm excited to be launching the Build and Exit podcast. This podcast is for business owners and entrepreneurs who are looking to expand their business portfolio by acquisition or at some point in the future want to exit their business. We're going to bring real life stories and experiences of people who have grown by acquisition, who have exited their businesses and other areas of business such as funding and cash flows. So there'll be lots of opportunity to learn different areas of business and how you can, in the end, transition your business from a lifestyle to an asset. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, and welcome to the Build and Exit podcast. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for listening to us. Um, My name is Julie Wilkinson, and I'm the owner and founder of Wilkinson Accounting Solutions. I started the Build and Exit off the back of the work we do in Wilkinson's because we help people with acquisitions and exit planning. And I saw there was quite a gap in the market of um, financial understanding when it comes to buying and selling businesses. So um, we've had lots of interesting guests, and I'm really excited today to have Matthew Wainwright with us. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Julie. Thanks a lot for having me on your on your podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. You're a very great guest. So I do get funny with this name. So Matthew is one part one of four partners in Opulentia Capital. It's a bit of a tricky name, so I yep. think I got it right. <laughs> Been partners for three and a half years. Uh, looked at 15 acquisitions, group turnover around 125 mil. Um, the premises of what you seem to do is leverage buyout, so minimal equity down. So I think it's going to be a really interesting topic because I know everybody's looking for no money down deals, as they like to call it. So first of all, let me hand over to you and introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for that, uh, Julie. So I think my, my journey in regards to my, my personal background, so I was born and raised in, in Spain. And moved over to London. And while I was in London, my entrepreneurial spark started, you know, I guess, coming out while I was at university. Um, and that's at the point in which I was starting out doing a bit of e-commerce um, work on, on the side while I was at university. Found out that that was really hard to pretty much build from scratch because you don't have, you know, employees. You don't normally have a lot of capital. You don't have a lot of resources to, to yourself. Um, and I got exposed to what is M&A. Right, so a lot of people call it a hack when when buying businesses because you can, you know, buy turnover. You can have staff that has already been trained, hired, is already working within the business. So I kind of started getting a lot of interest in in the M and A world at about five years ago now. So it's been five years since I've been focused on on M and A, and over the last three and a half years, as you very well mentioned, I've managed to close fifteen companies. They've all been leveraged buyout transactions of profitable companies that you know were looking for some kind of succession plan in place. We provided that through a structure that we can go into um, within the podcast. But it's it's been a, a really great journey. I've been exposed to eight different industries so far. I've learned tons throughout the process. Um, there's a lot of details that go into just getting one deal done, which I think is really important for for the audience to understand. A lot of skill sets, which is why, you know, Julie can be a really important resource when when looking at buying a company. But um, yeah, I, I guess I look forward to going deep dive into into how we go on about um, getting deals done, essentially. So. Yeah, definitely. I think where it'd be good to start is for people that don't know the terminology, when you say leverage buyout, maybe explain a little bit about what you mean and how you do it. Yeah, so a leverage buyout is a an acquisition of a company that gets done through debt. 
plus an equity component, right? So back in 1980s, it, it was a terminology that got really famous, especially in Wall Street, for buying you know asset-heavy industries with a lot of debt. And they would structure the acquisition, and then within two, three years, they would refinance that deal, make a bunch of money, and you know everyone was happy at that point. However, it does also have a bad terminology because a lot of the deals that happened back in the day um, used to go wrong. So uh, it's a, you know it's an acquisition structure that uses debt, uses a bit of equity. In our case, not necessarily that much, more or none at all from from our part. But um, yeah, it's a very common, I guess, acquisition process in the in the M and A world for for those who don't understand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I mean, what's going to be interesting? We're going to have a look at cash flow today because obviously that's the biggest thing that causes problems in businesses. I know from my perspective, from the people I speak to in the acquisition world, I leverage, but I think a lot of people just call it no money down deals. They look, and when they say money down deals, they're looking for kind of like, like heavy asset acquisitions where, you know, they yep. can leverage off that to get the financing. And what I just tried to say yep. to people is it's okay doing that, but that doesn't mean you don't need any knowledge of running a business or any risk strategy, because at the end of the day, once you've maximized the funding, yep what happens yeah. when you need funding for working capital. Um, now, it, I'm not saying it will happen, but uh, I think you have yeah. to be prepared. So I think you've obviously successfully yeah. done 15 of these. So it'd be interesting to see your yeah. take on how you're planning and you're managing your cash flows. Yeah. So I think, uh, first of all, when, when people say about no money down, it's not that the owner is not getting any money for, for the business. He is getting money for, for the business. But it's just, does it come out of your own pocket, right, as, as an investor, or does it come through other uh, sources? In our case, in this case, we, we utilize personal relationships and we utilize uh, financial institutions such as HSBC, Barclays, the big ones. And we also work with, with the boutique firms. So when we look at making an acquisition, yes, we do look at asset-heavy industries. We look at companies that have a low debt-to-asset ratio. This means that when we look at a, a company and when we look at refinancing the assets so that we can, I guess, generate a bit of cash for the upfront consideration, we've got uh, a good, you know, a good opportunity to offer a good amount of cash upfront for the business owner in day one, with a with some kind of seller financing option together with you know with that initial cash consideration. So it comes down to understanding the asset types that you've got within the business. It also comes down to arranging terms with a seller that makes sense. And then also obviously projecting the the cash flows and uh, and the risks that come out of that acquisition. I can go into Julie, I can go into how we how we try and mitigate those risks and the things that we look at in, inside companies. Yeah, definitely. I guess when, when we manage businesses, we want to see the working capital needs. We want to see who owes us money and we want to see who do we owe money to. That's how we manage the businesses within our portfolios, uh, within our portfolio, so that we can keep track of, of them uh, properly. Now, in order to understand the working capital needs, we look at the total revenue generated, right, minus the cost of goods sold. And that gives you a rough estimate. We also project the working capital needs um, based on the average um, of the last three years. And we project the, I guess, the need for repaying the, the interest on the new debt has, that has been injected inside the balance sheet, plus obviously the, the I guess, the cost of the principal plus the, the interest, as well as this fi- seller financing. 
So we first of all look at the working capital needs, we calculate that, then we project the cash flows, we look at what the cost of borrowing is, what the, um, I guess the payment terms are in the principal, and then we also project the, um, the seller financing note that will be paid over normally three to five years. And based on that, we need at least a 50% debt coverage ratio, which means that if the business were to lose half of its profits, it would still, it would still you know, be able to, to pay um, its debts when they're due, essentially. Okay. Um, those are the main factors that we look at financially when we look at um, you know, analyzing the financials of a business. We also look at the risk um, of the customers. So we create, check the, the customers and we get some good references from them. We also look at the customer concentration within the businesses. And we also project, you know, what the future costs are going to be from, from having employees within the business. So obviously there's a massive cost of living crisis going on right now. There's an inflation, uh, the cost of materials is going up. The working capital needs will also grow if we grow the company together with the with the employees. So those are components that we also look into and we take into consideration when we're looking at, I guess, properly analyzing the risks of, of managing a company. Um, yeah. So. So yeah, it's a very detailed analysis, I would say. Yeah, you know, it's music to my ears. I mean, this is all the things that I love because <laughs> I'm a geek. Um, but yeah, so yeah. yeah, we do. All, I mean, yeah. this is what we focus on when, when we work with people at Wilkinson's because I think it's having yeah. the right support, isn't it, to build the models. One of the things I see, and this is why I talk about a lot, you know, what are the owners doing in the business? You know, are the current overheads, you yeah. know, correct for the business even the business now i mean you'd be surprised how many well maybe you're not but it's quite surprising how many businesses actually are kind of understaffed already and the owners topping up the work but i suppose the problem is when you come on as the owner and you don't want to do that job or you can't do that job because you're not skilled in it straight away your profits are dropping so you know there's a calculation isn't there of excess working capital now but what's the real working capital for the business and 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 how do you then negotiate that you know i'm not saying you wouldn't buy it because if you've got you know a good team around you and it's a good business it's it just comes down to negotiations then doesn't it with the seller yeah yeah totally i think that the work that you guys do at, at wilkinson's it's it's just crucial right like if you can track the money um, within the business or the financial within the business, it, it's kind of like you control the organs within the body, right? Um, it, it's what makes the business run at the end of the day. Um, and it's really important to take a lot of, of things into consideration. We actually started out, uh, Julie, talking about that uh, with a with an outsourced finance function, very, very similar to how um, you guys run right now. We have obviously transitioned into bringing everything in-house and having our own CFO and our own financial analyst. But for those people starting out, I would definitely, definitely recommend having a really good detailed cash flow forecast of, of the businesses as you progress and having, you know, I guess that, that external um, person that can look at the business with, you know, with their perspective and with their experience. So definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think you've done the right thing. I mean, what we tend to do with businesses, because we do tend to work on multiple deals, we know really when you get to about deal four, you do need some form of finance team in-house. And that's one of the things that we do at Wilkerson's. We do actually help people recruit, train and onboard finance staff. So we'll set the modelling up so yep. that when the FD comes in-house, it's all ready. And we know that that's quite sought after because yep. finance teams like coming into things that are in place. If, if people come into messy situations, 
and yeah. and and then and then we just see the need. I think what happens in my experience, because obviously I've worked in finance teams before, I've worked in corporate, I've worked in these teams as well. I've done systems and things like that myself, systems and projects. Mm-hmm. And I know that yeah. what tends to happen is if you're doing lots of different projects and deals, sometimes the finance teams become over. It becomes they become too overworked, and then you might not need a finance person in house for deal five, say, because it's too expensive. Yeah. But actually, when you get to deal eight, you do. And I suppose that's where I think the outsource finance works well is it bridges that gap between when do you need the resource in house to when do you actually um keep it outsourced yeah totally totally i think it's as you said like setting the foundations for maybe the future finance team that goes in-house is very very important uh in fact a lot of the businesses that we buy the you would be amazed by you know multi-million pound turnover businesses that don't really track their accounts on a on a monthly basis and um, it's it's amazing to me how they make money but they do so <laughs> yeah yeah it's, yeah uh, although well it doesn't surprise me because i know because i see about 100 balance sheets a month and actually when i started wilkinson's i did a survey and i asked 20 businesses of all sizes from about fifty thousand turnover to about 20 million and 100 percent only saw their accounts once a year um i was yeah. a bit shocked back then because i wasn't in practice then i was in corporate but uh it doesn't surprise yeah. me now but what you'd find though the risk is this is why people struggled in covid because people manage, but that's because they're generally living off other people's money. So they're using their VAT yep. money, their tax money, which I'm not saying is a problem because yep. at the end of the day, that's how we all manage our cash flow is to utilize our cash at the right time. But when it is a problem is when something happens. So that's why when COVID came and businesses stopped, it became a problem because everyone had already used all the money. So therefore, yep. they now had no money to pay their debts. and Because uh, obviously, your tax and your VAT, in theory, is just a debt because it's cash collected yep. that you owe. Um, so yep. it is something important to look at, I think. Yeah, and I think if you were to empathise with, say, a typical business owner that has got, say, $1 million in the bank, the salaries are, say, hundred k per month, let's say. I mean, you've got enough working capital for, for the salaries, right? So it's not something that, um, just really there's really urgent to solve because you've always got cash in there but if you want to professionalize the business and you want to have like a, a bird's eye view of where you're at um, within you know within your year I think that at that point it becomes extremely important and as you mentioned uh, any emergencies that come up I mean if you can't um, yeah if you don't have a, a bird's eye view of, of, of where you're sitting it, it just makes financial decision making at least a lot a lot harder at the end of the day so, yeah, my yeah. experience is, you know, if you're just doing the same thing every year, in a way you can just maintain. My experience is it becomes a problem when either a scenario happens or you're trying to expand. That's when the problems yep. come because when you need an influx of cash, you have no yep. methodology to track it. So if you're just doing the same thing every year, like you say, with your fixed overheads and your small growth, you know, just your organic growth, it, you know, although you probably should be analysing it, you probably know, you can probably work it out enough to maintain, but it is when you want to yep. do something that it becomes a problem. Yep. Um, so, well, my experience and anyway. Julie, what, what's your take on dividend payments? So dividend policies within a company, let's say a company has made 1 million in, in profit, right? It It is looking at growing within the next, few years uh, and it's it is going to need you know a bit of extra working capital but the shareholders want to pay themselves what what's your perspective on on that um consensus yeah so well 
I mean, I think a lot of people don't really understand the difference. So the fact is when people pay themselves through the business, if they're not paying a salary and they're paying what they class as dividends, the reality is legally it's not actually a dividend at point that payment leaves the bank. It's actually a director's loan. And the reason is because you have to have enough retained profit to cover the dividend when you come to declare it, which is usually at the year end. Most people declare it at the year end. So there's nothing wrong yep. with paying the dividends. But what often happens is people overtrade. They did it a lot, especially with the Siebel's loans and the bounce back loans, because people have excess cash through things uh-huh. like VAT collection, tax collection, loan collection. But actually, yep. that's not been generated from the working capital. So mm. the bank balance... You, although, so it's interesting because the million pound in the bank example you gave, actually, I've seen people with a million pound cash, but you take off 18 months worth of taxes, three months of that that they haven't paid. And I've seen it drop to way under 400k. So actually, they yep. don't have a million. Their actual free cash is X. And that's not even the working yep. capital. That's just taxes already due um, because they're yep. not accounting for it correctly on the balance sheet. So it's making sure yep. you don't overtrade, basically. So that's yep. why you've got to be tracking it. At the end of the day, there's things yep. you can do to mitigate it. But if once you get to the point you've done it, it can be difficult to reverse it. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And then you're using yep. all your money. <laughs> yeah, yep. totally. I think uh, one of the... Th- the, the key things in my in my experience at least is to actually calculate the free cash flow and just make the you know I guess dividend decisions from the free cash flow as opposed to yeah just just the PL because it can be as you mentioned very tricky with you know new payments that will come along um, over the next few few months that you don't account to or account for sorry as of right now so definitely, definitely. yeah yeah um, I mean, my view is I don't think sellers work on adjusted EBITDAs often enough. I mean, are we look at it in our business? You know, you have a trading margin and then so you have an operating margin and then you have a adjusted margin. I think every business does because everybody does have some form of one-off costs that aren't ongoing. And so as an example, where the dividends cause the problem as well is is the cash flow and the tracking is one problem but it's also where is the PL? you know if they're taking mm. dividends they're not actually reporting the salary which is fine for tax purposes and i'm not saying you should pay it as a yeah. salary but it is yeah. quite easy to offline adjust your PL every yeah. month if you've got the right finance team in place to go okay so this is my trading margin but what's my operating margin and it's fair both ways because you know, if you have a one-off cost, let's just say you had a legal bill that you had to pay that was 20 grand and you're operating and your operations are being targeted on their performance, is it fair for them to get a lower commission because you've had a £20,000 legal bill that's got nothing to do with them? So I think people should be tracking adjusted margins in, in general anyway, because as long as you know, it's not that complicated. It's because people don't. So then the question comes when they are paying their dividends, you know, is the P and L got the right profits, the right costs in for those salaries as well? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How do you guys analyze that? I mean, how do you track that? So we look at we look at the, the free cash flow most of the times, and we do also project. You know, I guess the, the where the future is going, what the working capital needs are going to be like within the business, and then from there we make a decision. Normally, we have a dividend policy. Uh, we're calculating it now that about 20% of the profits will be distributed as pro- as dividends to the different shareholders within the business. Uh, that could be increased, that could be decreased, but it really is a case by case scenario. And there's no, you know, there's no general pattern that we, that we tend to follow on that front. I guess what's most important is to, for us at least as, as, as owners is to have the seller financing paid off 
so that the seller or you know as buyers we want to be a really good buyer so we want to pay the seller on time when it's due and so on and if you start paying yourself dividends at some point it, it just doesn't um yeah th- there's a misalignment of of interest there but what i what, what i would say is just you know if you were to own the entire business that you didn't have any debts and you wanted to enjoy yourself at that point, we just make the, the decision to, to pay ourselves. But um, it really does come down to a case by case scenario. Um, so there's no, there's no strict, I guess, formula that we, that we use. Uh, let's, let's put it that yeah. way. And I think it depends what industry you're in. So, for instance, you do a lot of asset financing yeah. probably, but I mean, you're looking at more service based yeah. businesses that is starts leveraging cash flow financing generally cash flow financing will look at profits less dividends actually when they give you the when they give you the cash flow funding so you know they'll look at average three times you know three times the profit less dividends so they do look at that at cash flow funding i'm not i don't know about every lender does but i know a typical lenders would so yeah 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 and do you guys work with lenders as well do you help uh, buyers finance the deals Uh, so like do you look for lending options or do you work with other providers in order to get that that funding sorted yeah so so we're not fca registered so we don't provide the funding but we've got a lot of connections to get financing i mean we're going through our own funding round now ourselves for our own business Mm -hmm. we do a lot of pitch decks as you might call them i mean pitch decks can be a bit controversial Uh, you you do need one you don't need a hundred page one but you you do need to understand what you're doing so we we do a lot of funding for people that help them build the cash flows the pitch decks and the the story around it i suppose is the most important thing because most people are buying into you really as the business because the numbers are what they are you know they can change it's do they trust whoever's going to have it can run it um, and I speak to a lot of funders and I know the problem with funding that they always tell me when they get the pitch decks is no one's prepared. You know, yep. they think just giving them a P&L and this the five-year forecast is going to be enough. And when they start challenging the numbers, whether this is a business mm. or a buyer, it's the same problem mm. They and they can't explain mm. it. It puts you on the back foot right at the beginning. Yeah, that's that's so so true. So where we've got right now, as we speak, we've got uh, nine companies on heads of terms, and that and before going to the financiers, we create a business plan, we create the projections, we create different scenarios, and not only that, but we actually say defend those scenarios. So it's kind of like each line item that you create within you know the projected P and L, right? You kind of need to be able to defend it. So for potential buyers that are looking at buying businesses, I think that's so, so important um, it, before even going to the banks. Uh, I think, um, I'm not sure what you think about this, but also buying profitable, well-established businesses, in my opinion, is really, really important. So most of the times, if you look at distressed deals, there's a reason why they're distressed. And most of the times is because obviously the market may have changed, that uh, you know the cost of materials may have gone up or, or whatever. But a lot of the times it's because of the people within those businesses. So you're buying into a business that may not have the, the appropriate people to run it. And that just makes things a, a lot more complicated. Whereas if you were to also look at what succession plan you would have in place post the business owner, say, leaving the business, I, I think you would um, yeah, you'd save a lot of um, headaches. <laughs> Let's put it that way uh, moving <laughs> yeah, forward. Yeah. So, yeah, just, yeah. yeah. I think it depends where you are in your journey and what you're looking for. So like as an example, there's lots of different reasons people do acquisitions. They either do it to get access to resource, like to skill, skilled labor, access new markets, yep. 
access supply chains. Um, So as an example, let's just say, I don't know, you've got a garage and you could build cards and you don't have the machinery to build cars. You don't have to do a share sale. So you might find a company in administration that's distressed that's got the machinery to build the cars. So therefore, your company's fine. And actually, there might be an opportunity just to buy the assets. So it might be you don't actually need the customers in this scenario. You just need access to the assets to help you like improve your mix of services so therefore it doesn't matter if the business is distressed you're actually going to get a good deal because you're just going to go and buy the assets you want and the distressed business will sell assets you know because they haven't got a choice they need it so there is good there is opportunity with distressed businesses yeah yeah totally in that in those cases uh there's totally an opportunity in fact we've we've uh, gotten a, a deal done for a company that we're building the food and beverage space um so that the company was going under yeah and we we took over the i guess the assets and and also the contract as well so contracts would be really valuable mm-hmm. moving forward yeah, yeah. so we we bought the contracts and the assets of the business added to, to the uk salads limited i guess holding company and um and it's added about ten million in, in additional revenue just from, I guess, taking a company that was going to go, um, yeah, under liquidation uh, and just mm-hmm. working out a deal with the owner. So, it, the, yeah, totally. There's a lot of opportunities there. It's just, you know, what what are those opportunities for, right? And do you have something, um, I guess, in the in the back room for for those yeah. distressed deals? To, to make sense. They work well when you, I think they work well when you bolt on. I mean, we've just done it ourselves. We've just done an asset sale in our own company. You know, we had opportunity. Okay. Uh, we, we, tr- we transferred the staff and we bought the clients. We basically changed it from about fifth. We pro- probably went at fifteen percentage points in margins. So we had no, 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 no overhead. So no offices because we're virtual. Minimal yep. insurance increase because ours is based on risk of payout, not number of clients. We got better partner rates with systems because you get a lower. The more you have, the more licenses you have. Um, because of the services yep. we offer, we can. We've bought a book of clients that have got. A certain level of a certain clientele that you know need the acquisitions of the exit planning so that's how uh-huh. we would that's how we leveraged an asset sale so we did an asset sale mm-hmm. not the share sale that's how we leverage it we probably increased i mean we've only had it th- three months and we probably al- already increased 15 percentage points just from the economies wow. of scales from the sale yep totally totally that's yeah. also something to to add to the to the projections so like economies of scale and group buying power right so if you were to but it just kind of makes sense for like just by itself. But uh, if you can buy in bulk or you, if you can buy in bulk, you know, subscriptions or you can buy in bulk materials, obviously that normally lowers the cost of, of purchase. And, and you can also project that into the, into the future cash flows and it also increases the profit margins. Right. So it's totally something that to also consider um, not only risk factors, but also opportunities, right. Moving forward. When, when oh, yeah. Businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the that is the biggest benefit, isn't it, of buying businesses? Is once yeah. you get bigger, you have more opportunity to reduce costs because once you start buying in bulk, you know everybody knows, don't they? If you had six in different insurance policies, it's going to be more expensive than if you have one group insurance policy. You know, every everything yeah. becomes cheaper in bulk, um, yeah. and that goes yeah. for funding. Typically, funding is harder for smaller deals. When you go above five mil funding, it's much easier to get it actually yeah. than it is to get the lower yeah. amounts. It's so, so that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in, in M A. It's easier to get bigger deals done than it is smaller ones. Mm. Like the 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 management teams are a lot more professional. Um, they understand the commercials of getting a deal done, 
then you go and talk to banks. Banks want to would rather lend you five million than they would say two hundred k, because for whatever reason, there's a lot of factors, obviously, but they see you as a a lower risk profile if you're raising five million because you've got probably more cash flows to well, you've got better projections, you've got more assets, you've got a lot more things in place so that they can have a better security option over of the the lending terms and um yeah it's one of the biggest lessons that i've learned over the last four or five years it's bigger it's easier to get bigger deals on than it is smaller ones mm, so that's yeah. so true in my experience as well yeah it's definitely it's definitely true yeah, yeah it is so so i mean we are coming i mean i could talk about this all day but we're coming towards the end of the podcast but one thing i would be quite interested to know is so have you come unstuck with cash flows in any of the acquisitions for a reason like had did cash flow difficulties yeah so it's it's part of running businesses you you've got all kinds of difficulties some of you know sometimes that's just the cash flow right some of us it's just you know i guess there's all kinds of problems that come um, as part of running a business so when we come across cash flow problems there's different things that we tend to that we tend to look at okay so we look at increasing the cash inside the business by negotiating debtor and creditor terms, right? So if you get paid earlier and you pay later, at some point that's going to increase the cash within your business. So that's something that we definitely look into. We also look, look into maybe renegotiating any payment terms that we may have. So maybe we owe, say, 100K in March, right? Well, can we renegotiate with the you know, with our um, supplier, say, 250K payments within 90 days? Is that something we can do? A lot of the times they're willing to do so, especially the opposite as well. So maybe uh, they're paying you, say, within within two months. Can they pay you this month an extra amount for, say, a discount on, on whatever they're purchasing? So those are things that we also look at. And then also you've got additional financial instruments that you can use in order to have more access to liquidity, right? So one of them could be, a uh, invoice facility that you raise against the debtor book another one could be just a finance facility that you can have access to as part of just having a bit more liquidity to play around with um obviously all of this stuff costs money right um but if the cash flow problem is for say march or february or january and you can get those facilities in place well, that that just gives you you know more oxygen to to play around with, but obviously you've got to be careful with the cost of 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 having access to that finance facility. But um, but yeah, those those are things that we try and utilize in order to mitigate with those mm. with those situations that always come up. So so we we've, yeah. we've got a lot of instruments in place. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. I find. What I think is people are too quick sometimes to get the financing. I mean, I we've gone into businesses and turned mm-hmm. about 150 grand of cash around in about four weeks just from internal changes, yep. like, the, like the debtor and creditor days, but maybe more advanced thinking. So like, you know, my yep. experience, people work well on invoice financing if you're in an industry where typically suppliers are getting long payment terms so if suppliers are giving you 90 yep. day permit terms that's where you want your invoice financing because you can draw the cash down however mm-hmm. sometimes we've seen it you know actually well why don't you just change your mindset and ask for deposits you, know, you don't have yep. to have invoice financing it is, that is a way but it's not the only way and people are just and this yep. is why you know the cost people will sometimes say oh i haven't got the money to invest in the finance team to do it but i'm like but the cost you're going to pay of the invoice financing over the next five years is going to cost you more yeah. than investing in your finance team because actually deposits cost you nothing 
really yep. apart from a fi- apart yep. from a better bookkeeper and a better finance and a better cash flow invoice financing yep. so invoice financing is a great product. you know we've we've helped people sign invoice financing because there is a need for it but it's, a, it's not the yep. only option and i don't think people are yeah. thinking strategically enough about their own internal operations so true so true um, I, I was just looking at it financially, but I mean, if you look at strategically from a, I guess, a commercial point of view, at any point in time, when you look at closing a sale, right? So let's say we sell, we sell about 75 million worth of caravans right now at this point. So what can we do in order to increase the purchase value at the point in which, you know, we sell a caravan? So we could look at insurance, we could look at uh, awnings we can look at accessories we can look at tvs we can look at all kinds of new products that we can add to that bundle um, mm-hmm. of not only selling the caravan but also selling you know products around the caravan um, and if you can do that obviously that increases the cash position within the business and that improves the cash flow um, i guess position moving forward those are things that maybe strategically you can think about maybe you're selling say a finance function within a business but then you could also sell I know a legal function uh, with just a JV partnership with someone else. So mm-hmm. that that I mean, those are just ways in which um, I guess you can creatively think through how to increase the, the cash position um, within months in which you may be struggling with with that cash flow, right? So the, there's a lot yeah. of things that can go into it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. All right. Wow. I mean, I could talk about this all day with you because it's really interesting, but. <laughs> Coming towards the so, end, I suppose yeah. one thing to ask is: so, what overall? What's your end game? Do you have one? Yeah, I, I do actually. So, I, I mean, I've got pretty big objectives, so um, or pretty big goals. I'm 25 right now. Um, I love this game. I, I love MA. I think it's really, really entertaining. Very mentally stimulating, uh, I would say. Um, so, I, I see myself doing this for for the next decade. To be honest. Um, I would love to be able to build our group to a billion pounds in turnover plus. Um, I don't see why we can't do it, but I, I feel like we, we're going to be looking at expanding internationally in the US, in the UK, in Australia, also in Canada as the main markets. Um, and just keep on doing leverage buyouts with, you know, with a few exits um, along the, you know, I guess along the years. Um, and yeah, just enjoying the process, to be honest. Um, I can go into a lot more detail about what my vision is, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, yeah. I mean, is there anything particularly, you know, is there any, can, should people contact you if they've got certain types of deals? What are you looking for just to? So, yeah. So, I mean, you can, we're looking at asset heavy uh, companies with turnovers in between three to 50 million in turnover in those main markets. Um and if you have any questions or any doubts or anything I can help out with, um, we're always keen on partnering in deals with people. You can find me on, on LinkedIn at Matthew Wainwright. Um, you know, if you just search for that on, on LinkedIn, you'll be able to find me. Um, and always keen on, on helping people out and seeing whether we can get a deal done together. So, so yeah, um, you can find me online there. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Matthew. And I just want to say thanks to everybody who's listening. I'm so excited. We've actually just gone over 1,000 downloads. This is our 
14th right. week and we've just gone over well now we're, well now we're at about 1100 i think but we was at a 1000 downloads so wow. um so if our guests love you know the show obviously there's a lot of traction we get a lot of downloads so hit this um subscribe or leave us a rating and review because we'd love to have comments and people we'd like to come on the show and i will see you again soon so once again thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast i hope you found it useful if you think there's anyone else in your network that might benefit from our podcast then please share it with them either just click the link and send it to them or send it in a facebook group or other social media channel don't forget to subscribe so other podcasts come to you directly as and when we launch them so i'm really looking forward to seeing you next time we've got some really exciting things coming up and we'll see you again soon 